This is the Let's Get Real Estate Show with your host, Danielle Chason. Full-time investor, strategic consultant, motivational coach, sought-after speaker, and host of your number one real estate investing show, Let's Get Real Estate, where real people are doing real estate. Hi, this is Tim Blake here with the Let's Get Real Estate podcast, and I'm with Danielle, and we're talking about commercial real estate versus residential estate. Hope you enjoy the show. Hey, everybody. It's Danielle Chason here with the Let's Get Real Estate podcast, and we are on for another great episode for you guys here with Tim Blake today. Tim, welcome to the show. Whoop, whoop. Thanks for having me, Danielle. Happy to be here. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you here because you work in a market up in Grand Prairie and you also have a niche working in commercial in a smaller market in Grand Prairie, Alberta. So I'm really curious to see how that compares to residential versus commercial. I'm sure you kind of started a little bit with uh, residential and then transferred over, kind of made the jump. But before we get into that, I just want to Give a little bit of backstory about Tim Blake and who you are for the audience, for those of those who are out there that don't know you. Tim is, as I mentioned, out in Grand Prairie, Alberta, and he is currently managing $16 million plus in assets under management. That spans over about 70 plus, 75 plus doors. And as I mentioned, he's in the commercial real estate space. He's a uh, agent, real estate agent at Remax up in Grand Prairie and very available to you if you want to connect with him after the show. But before we do that, let's talk commercial. Tim, tell me a little bit about your backstory. Like how did you get into where you are today? Like what's your story? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So like you said, I did, I did start out in residential kind of, I actually started really young. I started, uh, I bought my first house at 18, kind of house hacked it, had some, some friends move in and pay my mortgage type of thing. And bought my first uh, rental at 19, and just kind of realized that uh, I, I like the I like the whole idea of real estate is you, you can increase your your net worth and have people pay off your your mortgage for you. And so I kind of dove in that way and uh, started buying a few here and there, kind of residential, and had it as kind of a side gig for a while. So I worked uh, a lot of different sales jobs, sold furniture, I sold tractors, um, I sold uh, modular homes for a while as well. So kind of again. Real estate was always my passion, so I kind of had it as a side side gig doing doing long term rentals, some flips here and there, and then about uh, six seven years ago, I decided I wanted to go full time into it. So I got my real estate license for just for my own use. Actually, when I first got it, I basically just wanted to be able to buy and sell my own properties and have have access to the all the market stats and all the the deals that can happen before the public gets to see them. So I got my license around that time, and uh, and then. Not too long after that, I transitioned into uh, commercial real estate. So I really liked um, a lot of things about commercial real estate, and I'll get into a bit more details on 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 some of the things that attract me to it. But that's kind of the my the focus. My focus for the last five years or so is commercial real estate investing, and I now do uh, I work with clients as well as a commercial realtor. I don't don't list houses, but I do do commercial realtor work as well. That's awesome, and that's what got you to managing sixteen million dollars under under management. That's incredible. Now you said until six years ago, that was a side gig. Real estate was a side gig for you, but you did start early. And that's what I keep telling people, like building real estate takes time, but eventually like you just keep adding one brick on top of another, on top of another, and you really do have an empire. So why did you make real estate, sorry, commercial your thing now? Like after you got licensed, you decided to make a, a go of it. Were you acting as a residential agent for a while and then you shifted? 
Uh, no, I never was, except for my own use. So when I first got my license, again, I I, I was wanting to ramp up my real estate. And I was doing some, you know some flips, and I was also doing some some development where I was setting up uh, acreages with modular homes, and, and I was going to be doing a lot of transactions, and wanted to have access to the the properties as well. So I did. I just got my license, and for the first couple of years, I like I wasn't I didn't work with anybody except for my myself, my own companies as far as my clients. So I didn't. I never really wanted to be. Uh, uh, a realtor on the residential side, just with the, I guess, you know, the hours you got to work, weekends, evenings, and just, there was never my goal to, to be a, a realtor that way, but I wanted to have all the advantages of um, having my license and having access to all the properties and, and save money on buying and selling and all that kind of thing. So that's why I got my license. And then um, kind of as I was in it, I always had thought commercial was something that always kind of interested me and, you know, bigger numbers, um, different rules um and just cash flow is it can be can be much much better so that was kind of things i, I was kind of poking around that my first few years and then I, I bought my first first property went well bought another one and just kind of decide that's that's the the route i want to take and continue on that that uh, that journey so a couple of things you mentioned there um bigger numbers that's why a lot of people don't do commercial real estate so tell me about why that attracted you and what were the challenges like when you're going from single family home? Like, what is a what is the price of a average price of a single family home in Grand Prairie right now? Um, you, you, this will probably shock your listeners, but we're about we're about three hundred sixty thousand for your kind of median uh, house up here, so it's very affordable up here. And uh, and actually, you know, that's a lot of people from your province are, are heading our way right now because there's a lot of work and and houses are affordable. Oh um, yes, absolutely. Yeah. But uh, yeah, as far as yeah, the, the bigger number that, that again, that's the that's the, the biggest stumbling block for anybody kind of getting into uh, the commercial space. And when I say commercial, I'm more meaning, um, you know, your tenant is a is a business, uh, whether it's a retail or uh, up here a lot of shops like uh, oil field shops, um, some office stuff, and that's that's mostly what I, I focus in on. And uh, so yeah, much bigger numbers with that. So for example, I mean, if you're buying say a a typical transaction period I'm doing is, you know, between um, one and a half to $2 million on a, on a purchase. And, you know, I'd have to buy a lot of houses and, and a lot more management nightmare to, I guess, get the same, same assets, you know, locked up and, and substantially more to get the same cash flow you can get from, from these ones if you buy them. Right. So that's, that's what attracts me is I want to scale things up, but I didn't want to have to manage, you know, 15 doors for, for, you know, if I could buy one or two commercial ones. Well, See, I'm going to play devil's advocate here because then I would say, well, if I have, you know, 15, it might be a little bit high for, for that two minutes. Let's say, let's say we have five single family homes to your one commercial unit uh, at about like that $300,000 mark to 2 million for the commercial. So if I was looking at that, then um, um, if you have a vacancy on the commercial unit, then you're going to have to carry all of that cost with no income coming in. But if I have five or six houses, you know, for that, that same kind of price range and there's one vacancy, then I think the impact would be less. So how do you manage that? And yeah, how, yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. That's, that's one of the hugest stumbling blocks and one of the hugest downsides, I guess, of commercial is like you said, if you have one vacancy, it can, it can, be very detrimental and also it can take much longer to fill a vacancy on a commercial unit. It can take a year or more to fill a vacancy where a residential, you know, maybe you're out a month rent if you can't get it in right away. But uh, so the way I, I mitigate that is I actually, I won't ever just have like a company with 
one building in it. We'll, we'll, we'll have, say, say for example, that $2 million shop, a lot of times they'll have actually different suites in it. Maybe there'll be a, a four unit shop. So we have four different tents in there. Um, also what I'll do is I'll kind of package those buildings into another, like with other buildings within a company. So you kind of get that vacancy risk spread out um, throughout the portfolio. So exactly what you said, like I, I wouldn't recommend somebody going out and buying just one, one commercial building and, and, you know, you're really banking that one tenant to, to really keep going. So you want to have some diversity to protect your, your downside because eventually you're gonna have some vacancy. And like I said, in commercial, they're, they're much longer and um, you want to have, you know, the two things is diversify, have more in that um, uh, different tenants within a company or also as well as have large cash reserves because there's going to be a time when you're going to have to have a long-term vacancy and a, a roof can be a huge bill on a commercial building versus a, a residential as well. Yeah, when you compare residential to commercial, the swings are a lot bigger. So the highs are higher and the lows are lower than they would be in the residential market, which is maybe a little bit more stable to your point. You can fill a vacancy a lot quicker. Um, maybe you can sell it quicker as well. And so you need to make sure that since the lows are lower, that you do have those cash reserves. So I'm glad you said that. But what I'm hearing you say too, though, that's getting me fired up and excited is that in the commercial space, you can get a little bit more creative, as you said. I mean, you say, okay, well, I'm going to take this this larger property that's maybe two doors and make it into four. And then I can have four tenants, or maybe I can have multiple tenants in one unit in a shared space. There's a, a, I think a little bit more room to be creative there. If you're willing to explore that and step outside of the box, whereas, you know, an apartment or a single family home or a duplex, it is what it is. There's not much more you can do beyond that. And, uh, and so you also get to play with your numbers a little bit. So, um, talking about bigger numbers, that is a big jump for people. How do you deal with the financing on that? Yeah, for sure. And I just want to just maybe back up to your last point because that is a great point. You said there's more stuff you can do, more more creativity um, outside the box thinking you can do in commercial. Like for example, like you said, that vacant building can be very hard to fill. So if you can get a tenant lined up for it, you can buy it really, really well, have a tenant in place. So there's, there's, there can be, you know, large upsides there where you can get instant equity. And also, like you said, um, split up space in, into smaller units. And now they actually will, will rent out for more, more price per square foot, your values up, your cash flows up. So there is definitely a lot more of that. And I mean, financing as well can be a lot more creative. I mean, most people you're dealing with are business owners as well. So they can be a bit more creative as far as maybe some owner financing or, there's definitely more of that in that world than there is in residential, which I mean, I love putting together create, creative deals. Sometimes it's not a matter of finding the deals, it's a matter of making the deal. So you can kind of work with within the, uh, uh, what you have and, and make it even better. So I guess that's, uh, I just want to touch on that because there is a lot more creativity that goes into, um, which can be a double-edged sword. If you don't know what you're doing, it can also get you into trouble as well. So. For sure. Well, let's put the two together, being creative and dealing with the financing. So you mentioned owner financing. Uh, owner financing. Can you expand on that a little bit for the listeners to understand? Maybe we call it seller, you know, VTBs or seller takebacks. Um, but in the commercial space, what you said is very important. I want the listeners to take back. In the commercial space, it's very common to do these VTBs or the seller financing. So, and you can become very creative around that. So can you expand, Tim, with your expertise and your experience, expand on maybe giving two or three different ways that you can use the seller financing and make it a little bit more creative in order to make a deal work? 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, so you know, a lot of times what I'll do is I'll have if I'm if I have a building I've I've identified as a good property. Sometimes I'll actually present it with two offers. I'll present them with a a regular offer, just like every other offer would be, a cash offer. I mean, it's not cash; it's got financing, but cash to them. And then I'll also offer um, an owner financing offer, typically at a, a better price. Um, but I'll get good terms on it. So say if the prevailing interest rate is 5%, maybe I'm going to try and get them at 3%. And maybe I want to get, uh, say, 20% down and my bank will make me put 25% down. So you can kind of, you know, tweak those terms a little bit. But at the same time, you're giving the seller a bit better dollar. So it could be a, a win-win. And I mean, you know, say a, a couple percent on interest can make a huge difference over the, the term of the investment and, and your cash flow. So um I often will do that. And I mean, and it's, it's always, you never really know when you put those in there, if the sellers can prefer top dollar or just give me, you know, they just want out of it. And, and there's, and they kind of open up the door and then you don't look, it, it also opened up the door where if, if your cash offers a bit of a low ball and the, what they might think it might be a little less insulting because you've also given them an option where maybe you can get close to their, their asking price um, with doing that. Um, so that that's options where, or if a building, say, say it isn't bankable, like I had, I had a building I bought where the leases were well below market and the, they were short. So the bank is not going to sign on. So basically I presented a seller financing option where they gave me really good terms. Like I think I was paying about 2% interest on it instead of the you know four at the time would have, what it would have paid. So the cash flow kind of worked out itself. And over that time, I was able to get the, the lease right where they're, they're supposed to be, refilled one of the units with a, 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 you know, a market paying tenant. And then I was able to go to back to the bank and then it's now it's bankable. So kind of made a deal that wasn't bankable into a bankable deal. So that's, you know, a couple ways you can work with, with the, um, the seller to find a solution that works for everybody. Yeah. And I love that because you're saying anybody who would have came to the table who wanted to buy it, unless they had massive amount of money to put down, which real estate investors really want to put as little down as they can, but then the debt service didn't work for the bank's criteria. So by bringing in a lower interest rate and, and the seller would have had a problem selling to anybody, unless, like I said, there was big, big, big um, cash infusion initially for the down payment. And so this way you were able to say, Hey, look, let me help you offload this property. We'll take it on. We do it this way. It reduces your debt service. So then that way you're able to work within the bank's criteria and he can sell the property, which he probably was struggling to do. So again, being creative and thinking outside of the box. And I think that's where having somebody like you on their team and any of the investors that are out there listening right now that wants to learn a little bit more about doing that creative stuff, find somebody with experience like Tim to work with you so that you can do these creative strategies. Because a lot of times, just because something sat on the market for a long time, doesn't necessarily mean that it's uh, not saleable or it's, there's something wrong with the property. Maybe sometimes it's just as simple as financing. You need somebody with the experience to know how to approach it and make the deal work. So I love that. Absolutely love that. Yeah. And yeah, you don't know until you ask the question, right? You got to ask the question to the seller. Why hasn't it sold? What's your, what's your challenge? And then you work yeah. with that. Yeah. And absent. And, and I kind of take it a step further where I'm like, a lot of times there's another realtor involved in the process. So you don't actually get to talk to the seller directly, which um, is common with its residential commercial, but so I'll lay it, lay it right out. I'll make like literally two, two offers um, for them to look through. And I, I'll explain why I'm offering it this way. I'll even uh, attach a, an amortization schedule. So, okay, here's what the payments will look like over this, say, five-year term. And then after five years, then I'm paying you out. You know, just lay it, lay it out real clear so you don't have maybe an agent on the other end who maybe doesn't understand this as much, trying to explain it to their client who doesn't maybe totally understand it. So you, gotta, you wanna be the one, I guess, 
explaining your case. And I mean, definitely have had some success with, with getting some of those deals done. I mean, there's times that seller just no, not interested in that period. It doesn't matter what you're going to say, which is fine, but, and maybe they'll accept a lower price if, the, if that's the case. But uh, there's definitely times when, when it does work as well. Yeah. You got to ask a question for sure. And I love what you said. Like you, I, I'm a huge, huge proponent, proponent, like when it comes to education and knowledge, like education is key. And so I'm constantly like when I'm dealing with agents, property managers, clients, whoever it is, like I'm always educating them on the process because once they understand it, then it's easier for them to move forward. And so I love what you said there, educating the other agents. It's a big, big challenge for any investor agent who's representing their client is having a regular agent on the other side that maybe not, maybe isn't as knowledgeable. So I love how you said that um, because I think it's our job to educate others around us as to what we're doing and why so that they understand. Absolutely. Confused mind always says no. (laughs) They don't buy. Confused minds don't buy. You're right. Um, You also mentioned early back, um, um, just in the kind of in the beginning when we started talking, how one of the reasons why you went into commercial is because there were different rules. And I would love for you to expand on that. Like, what does it look like having yeah. a commercial tenant versus a residential tenant? Yeah, for sure. So, um, I mean, in residential, I mean, you're obviously you're governed by your province's um, landlord tenancy laws. And you I mean, typically the landlord is responsible for almost all maintenance, anything management is all, all at the, uh, the landlord's expense. Whereas in uh, triple net leases in the commercial world, you're basically offloading all those responsibilities onto your tenant. So you have a, as long as your tenant is paying you, you have a much more stabilized uh, cash flow out of it because, you know, for example, if the toilet breaks in your tenant's property, if it's commercial, I mean, the lease states you're fixing it. Don't call me, call a plumber and pay for it versus residential where you got to call the plumber and get it, get it fixed, that type of stuff. Um, so yeah, and, and your leases will always, you know, lay that right out who's responsible for what. And it's just, you know, it's commonplace that most things are just basically up to the tenant to, to look after. Even management, I mean, if you're going to hire a property manager, you know, residential, I mean, you're paying 10% of your rent every month to it. I mean, in the commercial world, that actually is typically downloaded also to tenants. You can actually charge your tenant for managing them or have a third party involved. If you want to have a third party involved and just charge their fees onto their additional rent, their monthly payments they make to you. So you mentioned triple net leases. And I got a ton of people right now that are listening going, what the heck is that? What's a triple net lease? Can you expand on that? Yeah. So basically, it's basically a, a lease that... Um, lays out that the tenant basically is responsible for all the operating expenses for the business. So obviously utilities, but like it said, plumbing stuff, um, even property tax. Say the property taxes go up, the insurance goes up. I mean, that basically just goes right right back to the tenant to, to look after. So basically it's, it's designed to be a, I guess, a, a carefree lease for the landlord who just basically will just collect their their rent, you cover all the expenses, we'll just collect our, our, our rent. And I mean, you, you do invoice the monthly for those expenses, but it's, uh, so again, there's a lot less management on them. Like, again, you don't have to line up as many contractors and things like that. And uh, I mean, typically too, I mean, you're, you're dealing with businesses versus personal. So it's a lot of times it's less, um, less drama, less, you know, it's, it's a business that, that you work with business people versus personal. So it's, a, there's usually less drama I found as well. Yeah. I think they want to just make sure that they don't lose their place of business. So they always keep the landlord happy so that they can focus on their, on their clients, keeping their clients happy. And that's the highest and best use for them, I would say. But yeah, um, I mean, you're, I, kind of, you're kind of aligned, your interests are kind of aligned and, you know, 
their, their long-term success location. I mean, it, it's, it's definitely a, a lot more um, intertwined than say a residential where they might leave in a year. Yeah. And about that, so the tenancy laws around commercial versus residential are quite different. So what would you say are the top three beneficial um, rules that are kind of in the favor of the landlord or the reason why you would want to be a commercial landlord over a residential landlord? Yeah. I guess the main thing is, is contract law. So it basically it's is um, whatever and whatever you contract in the lease and leases can be, uh, are often very elaborate as far as what they're what's what's in there. But I mean, the gist of it is is they're responsible for typically all the expenses in the property. And if they don't pay their rent, you don't have to go through some sort of a tribunal wait for that to happen. It's just it's a matter of if it's written lease. A lot of times the lease has written right in it. If rent's not paid, we can basically change the locks and seize your stuff until it's paid. Like it's it can happen much quicker not, not like you want to do that that's a nuclear option you don't want to do that you want to work with your tenant because they're you know their success is your success and keep them going well but you do have a, a much bigger stick and you don't have to jump through so many hoops to get rid of a, a problem tenant sense. yeah that's I, think that's, I think that's the biggest one <laughs> yeah i was gonna say that i think that's probably the biggest one because and again because we can lock the doors on them they pay and so i think that's the biggest difference and what about doing uh, rental increases and keeping your rent um, to market rents, how does that look yeah. like? Yeah, so there's there's no there's no rent controls in well in Alberta. I'm talking Alberta. No rent controls on commercial whatsoever. So if the lease ends, you can put the rent to wherever is is fair. I mean, um, I mean, obviously you want you don't want to be unreasonable. But if if the market rent has went up twenty percent, you're going to boost to twenty percent, and uh, and there's there's not any kind of a a, a, a government body telling you you can't do it. I mean, we're the same way in Alberta for for residential as well. We have there we can increase our rent at the end of a term as well. There's no no limits on it here. So um, yeah, definitely. Again, it's 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 a business transaction. So whatever the two sides agree on, it's is basically what what gets laid out there. I mean, sometimes in leases, there's again leases. Some leases are like fifty pages long. One of the things, yeah, like. A lot of times there, there's different things in there. So anytime you're buying a property, you really got to go through the lease because it can make a huge difference of um, if that lease is enforceable. I mean, I've seen leases where um, there's a five-year lease, but there's a 90-day out clause. So you don't actually have a five-year lease. You have a 90-day lease. So there's, you know, got to really make sure you're, you're going through the, the details on the lease. Make sure it's it's what you think, what, what you think you're getting because there is oftentimes that it's not what you expect it to be until, once you start reading it. So do we use um, property managers that do commercial, like to draft up the lease? Like if I was just an investor moving into the commercial space, how would I know, like who would I contract out or hire in order to make sure that I get a lease that's appropriate and to do the negotiation? Is that the realtor that would do that? Or is there property managers that do that? Yeah. And again, like, like a lot of things in commercial, it's kind of all over the board. I mean, there's some, some prop management companies who will have their own in-house lease that they can just basically plug your stuff into. Um, like I said, if I have clients, I'll, I have a, my own in-house lease and I'll, I'll let them use my lease to plug their stuff into. Um, but if you want, you know, super detailed and want to really cover yourself, um, your lawyer will draft you a, a lease um, to, to, you know, each specific deal, which again, I don't do because it's expensive every time you go to a lawyer, but there is some landlords who every time they have a, have a lease, they'll, they'll take their lawyer to, to go through it or, or they'll at least have a template made up from their lawyer. They paid a few thousand bucks for, and then just, you know, enter their stuff in from there. So it's, it's kind of all over the place, but you definitely want to make sure your lease covers what you need it to cover. And again, if you're in a lot of times I'm buying properties with tenants, so I'm inheriting these leases. So I got to go through them and, and just find out if there's any, any landmines in there. And if they are kind of 
mitigate them if you can or, or, or walk away from the deal. I walk away from deals over what's in the lease before too. So if you're able to, um, if you were to buy a property and you've got a grandfathered tenant and it's a commercial property, so you've got this commercial lease and you, you review it. Now, let's say the, there's another six months left to the lease or a year. At the end of the year, can you completely scrap that lease and reissue a new one with your terms and renegotiate that? Or do you just extend that? Like yeah. as, as in the residential world here, we can just extend, we can't renegotiate any terms. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. You can renegotiate the lease with your, put it on your form if you want. I've done both. I've, I've done, like going through one right now where the lease I inherited is very unclear and we've even with the tenant even had some discussions about who's responsible for what because it's not super clear on the lease. So it's okay. Well, there's only six months left the next, on the renewal. It'll be on my lease. It'll be, you know, crystal clear who's responsible for what and and, but I've also done ones where, you know, the lease is, it's, it's not my lease, but it's, it's a pretty lease. And instead of trying to, you know, start the process of negotiating just on the lease specifics, I'll just extend their lease and they'll sign off. And so I've done, I've done both. Yeah. Well, it's nice that you have that option in the commercial world because in the residential world, you really don't. And so oh, depending on where you are, depending on where you are. So, yeah. So what would you say is the biggest challenge that you, that, that you see your clients overcoming and going from a, going from a residential investor into the commercial world? What is the biggest challenge? Yeah. I mean, the first thing's mindset for sure. I mean, which that, that held me up for the longest time is, is to go from, you know, buying a $200,000 property to try and buy a, you know, a, over $1 million property. It's just the mindset first, as far as, you know, it's, it's not, it's not like you have to be some big hedge fund or, or, or something like that. I mean, regular people can, can do this it's just a matter of, 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 finding something that works and, and kind of going through it and you're going to, you know, get, get yourself educated, but you're going to make mistakes and get, learn from it and get better and better. So the first thing is mindset, but uh, also, I mean, obviously like we talked about earlier, I mean, the, the cost to entry is, is much higher. So that's the, that's the biggest thing. I mean, you know, typically you're 25% down, plus you're going to want to have about 5% as a contingency fund. So, you know, on a $2 million building, I mean, that's a, that's a good chunk of chunk of change. So you got to either have capital or have, have, access to partners who have capital and again very tough to establish yourself you know with partners when you haven't done a deal in that space yourself so that's those are the two two biggest challenges i say i find and so how would you structure that partnership do you do a jv agreement is it done in a corp how would you typically structure a partnership on a big acquisition like that yeah I would, I would typically, I, I typically what I do is I'll, I'll have a company, we'll buy it in that company. And then my partners would come in as, as shareholders and we would typically, their investment will typically be a shareholder loan, like a non-interest bearing shareholder loan. And then we'll just own the property and, and uh, within that corporation and I don't know, maybe, maybe add more properties to that, that uh, corporation as well. And just, you know, keep it long-term. I'm definitely a long-term hold investor myself. So I, I, I like to keep things long-term and, and commercial, especially, I mean, it's not a short-term game. You've got to be, be in it long-term to, to get the benefits. And uh, so that would be kind of the, the, the way I use the structure. And yeah, if it's a small one, I've done smaller ones when I first got into it, I was doing by JV. But if it's anything of any kind of scale, then it, it makes sense to do it in a corporation I've always found. And so you mentioned your partners and you're a long-term kind of guy. And so I think it's really important to note, would you say that one of the key things when you're looking for a partner, especially if you're going to go into a corporation that you make sure that they align with you, that they are also long-term and that what your goals are also align, whether you're looking for appreciation or cash flow or a little bit of both. Um, because when you go into 
um, a, a partnership with people and you create a corp together, it can get very messy very quickly if you haven't really lined up with the right people. Have you had any, have you had any experiences like that? Um, yes. Well, I mean, I definitely, I, I definitely identify that on the front end, always anybody I'm talking to, I mean, one of the first things I say is this is, this is a long-term hold. I mean, I'll always say like minimum five years, if you're not ready to put your, your capital to work for minimum five years, this is not the investment for you. Um, so yeah, definitely. I always tack that right on the front end and that, that actually, that'll, that'll weed out a lot of your investors. I mean, I have a lot of guys who, who, you know, like me, like the deal like this, but they, oh, they don't, they don't want to have it tied up for a long, long term. So uh, that'll weed out a lot of people right off the bat, just saying, you know, you, you don't even ask me for, you know, within five years to get this back. Cause that's not, that's not what this is. Um, so again, if it, but yeah, you're right. If, if that hasn't been clearly stated and agreed upon that you have the same goals, then that can be very, very tough down the road to try and unwind a company. And, and then there's, yeah, there's, it, it, there, there can be a lot to it. So for sure, you want to make sure your, your, your investors are aligned with you for sure on term and, and what the goal is, the, uh, what they want out of it. I mean, if they're, if they're looking for cash flow, I mean, they, there's some cash flow, but it's, I mean, there is ways to get higher cash flow, but you have less upside. So there's definitely different, different things that you can do with them or, or have them do themselves as well. Now you mentioned cash flow. Now in our economy right now, it's a little bit scary for a lot of people and we're, we're all kind of looking for cash flow because the interest rates are going up. We want to cover that debt, make sure that we don't run out of cash. And so yeah. what would you say commercial versus residential change? Like how does it differ as far as helping with that cash flow? Is it easier? Is it harder? What would your, what would your thoughts be on that? Yeah. When comparing and that's, and yeah, for sure. That, that's one of the main things that attract me to commercial is the cash flow because it, it's substantially higher cash flow than, than residential. I mean, again, I can only speak to my market, but in my market, I mean, residential, I mean, you, if breaking even is, is about the best you can hope for kind of thing. I mean, yeah, someone should be up a few hundred bucks, but really when you, we look at the full cost of having to fix a roof or a furnace down the road, I mean, you're really just maybe breaking even just above where commercial, you can't actually get some actual cash flow after all your expenses if you buy it right. Um, so, I mean, the problems I'm looking at, I'm basically, I'm looking for, you know, 10 to 15% cash on cash, um, return as far as cash flow. So there is, there is definitely some, you know, substantially more cash flow available in commercial, as long as you can get, as long as it's done right. And you're, you don't have major vacancies, so you, you don't have to have some diversity within your holdings to, to maintain that because that their vacancy can, can, can really kill that. But if you, if you do it with some, some diversity, you can definitely have much, much higher cash flow than you'll find in, in residential. And what about, you mentioned um, appreciation. How does appreciation differ when you're comparing residential and commercial? Yeah. And again, it's over time. I mean, commercial will go up as well, like, like residential was, but I mean, it, 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 it's harder to define. I'd say it's harder to define in commercial because I mean, a lot of your value of your building is what your leases are. I mean, um, where residential, I mean, a lot of time it's just compared to what the other house kind of like it's sold down the street where residential, you can have one building that's, you know, two very similar buildings and one's worth, you know, 20% more because it's got a, a much better lease in place. So um, that's, and that's one of the reasons I do like it because there is so much um, different things you can do and, and, and weave through that you can actually, you know, really juice those numbers. If you can say buy it, buy a building vacant, but have a tenant lined up to go in it. So you're buying it at a discount. You're getting forced depreciation in there. Or if you're buying a building that you know the, the rents because you know the rents are, are 20% below market, you crank those up to market on the renewals and all of a sudden your building is, is worth, you know, it's actually more than 20, it's worth substantially more. So 
um, that's, I guess, you have a bit more control than you do on, say, the residential appreciation, um, but there's a bit more that goes into it for sure. Well, is there any advice that you would have that you would give to anybody who wants to make the jump? Because I think there's a lot of people that would love to, tr- you know, do that transfer over from residential to commercial, and maybe they have a lot of equity in the residential space. Maybe they're tired of, you know, the toilets and tenants, and so they just want to like sell that. Because honestly, what you're saying to me today and to my audience about, yeah, you can delegate all of uh, all of the expenses onto your tenant and oh you're not gonna have to call the plumber and you're not gonna have to call the electrician I mean that is very attractive things that you're saying to a tired landlord and so yep. if I'm a tired <laughs> landlord most tired landlords do this by the way they sell and then they just start investing they put their money into the financial markets so but this is yep. an opportunity this is a different avenue that they could potentially take sell those houses put them back out onto the market and then reinvest it maybe into the commercial space. So what would you tell them that they need to do or the easiest way to do it um, if they wanted to transfer into the commercial space? What are the top three yeah. things that they need to do? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the first thing, I mean, you could get, get educated if they're, again, if they want to do the, the, if they're a, a you know, hands-on investor, get, I mean, either way, get yourself educated on the, the market that they, they, they target, you know, run, run what the rents are on, in your market, get to know that really well, and then you know see what the the cap rates are going to be as far as that. You know, if something's a deal, because you got to be able to basically realize what it, what a deal looks like first off. So, so you know, walk as many properties as you can. You know, try and figure out what your rents are and and what things are selling for, and and kind of get a sense of of run run a lot of cash flow numbers, just see see where it's at, and kind of really familiarize familiarize yourself with that, so you can really know if something does cross your desk, it's a good deal to be able to have the confidence to act on it. Um, so that'd be, I guess, the, the first thing. I mean, and then to get to decide if they're, if they're, uh, um, want to be a working partner, like want to be someone who's, you know, find the properties, doing everything, or if they're, if they're more suited to maybe just, okay, I've got some, some capital. I don't really want to be super involved, but I want to, um, put it to work and then be more of a, a passive investor because there's opportunities with, with that for a lot of different, different people as well. So I guess to define what exactly their, their goals are and, and how much time and, and effort they want to put into those goals and, and to kind of go from there. Um, that would be, I guess, the, it's the first first couple things to, to get figured out for sure. And I think that's key. Honestly, just go back to basics because you're starting something new. It's yeah. uh, maybe you have, you know, you have an idea in the investment world and you understand kind of how it works. Um, so the learning curve shouldn't be as difficult, but you are going into a brand new niche. If you've never been there before, you got to start from scratch, just like you did when yeah. you were walking through your first property and um, searching for that first house and running your numbers. Sometimes yeah. it's hard to go back to basics, but it's good for us sometimes. Yeah. And that's exactly what you have to do is just, just familiarize, familiarize yourself. Again, if you have a lot of experience in residential, that'll come a lot quicker to you than someone who doesn't. But it's definitely a, a different world. So it's got to got to learn learn the terminology, learn the learn what things you're going for, and 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 that is a huge thing. Um, one other thing I found I didn't mention before, but one of the reasons I, I went commercial as well is financing. I mean, I was getting to the point where I'm hitting a wall of how many residentials I have, where banks no longer will approve me on them. But it's so strange. I mean, I have a, a duplex I was trying to get refinanced out for like a two hundred thousand dollar duplex, and I couldn't get a bank to do it. But I just financed a you know a, a one point six million dollar shop. Like it just doesn't make sense, but they look at you differently when you're in a, in a corp versus you personally, because they have different guidelines they have to follow, which is, it still blows my mind, but it definitely is a big thing that some people do make the jump for that part, partly for that reason as well. 
Yeah. A lot of people are actually moving into the multifamily space because of that, but they're overlooking yep. the fact that they can do the same thing in the commercial space, get higher cash flow, less management. Uh, I think it's very attractive to be honest. And the last thing that I want to say, like if they wanted to, if anybody listening wants to jump into the commercial space, not only do you have to go back to basics and learn the numbers and learn how to vet the properties and stuff like that, learn the financing again, which is totally different than getting residential financing. What you also need to do is you need to align yourself with people like Tim. You got to find the Tim Blakes out there that are savvy in the commercial space so that they can help guide you and educate you along the way. And I've always had, uh, I've always had a kind of a, um, a, a mark for me was when I'm dealing with professionals, if they're not willing to answer my questions and educate me and what I need to know so that we can work together a lot easier then I probably don't want to work with them. And Tim, you're the guy that's going to help people and educate them. And I also know not only do you work as a commercial broker, but you also on your personal deals, you also work with partners and uh, other lenders and, and equity partners as well. So you can help just a slew of people that want to get into the commercial space in very different many ways. So I do appreciate the service that you do offer out there. If there's anybody who wants to reach out to Tim, he is in Grand Prairie, Alberta. Um, but he's willing to, you know, help out where he can. If you want to reach out to him, it's timblakerealestate.ca and uh, get into a conversation about real estate, commercial real estate, find out a little bit more, see if it's for you, see if there's a way you can work together. Uh, I happen to know Grand Prairie. It's a great market. Um, it's easily overlooked because it's kind of isolated, but it's a great area and uh, great people up there too. So Tim, is there any last words that you have for our audience um, any words of wisdom that you want to share? Any ninja tips? <laughs> I guess, I guess just, uh, again, just, if you decide it's something you want to approach, just, I mean, just learn it, learn it first. And then, and, but don't be scared to actually, you know, shoot the puck and, and, and do something. If, if you decide it is for you, a lot of people will just analyze, analyze, analyze. I mean, if you decide it is for you, um, do your analyzing, but also, you know, don't be scared to don't, don't feel like you have to know absolutely everything before you jump in. Cause they that's, that's how we learn. Absolutely. Learn enough to make an informed decision. That's it. Don't overanalyze. All right, Tim. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and taking the time. I know you're a busy guy. So thank you, Tim Blake. Woo, woo. Commercial, commercial all day long. I love it. Um, if, again, to the audience, if you want to find out more about Tim, his bio page is up on the Let's Get Real Estate Podcast website at letsgetrealestatepodcast.com. Just go to our um, guests and on there, you'll find Tim's profile and all the information. It'll also be all in the show notes and you can find him all over social media. So if there's anything that he can help you with, feel free to reach out. And in the meantime, this is Danielle signing off for another episode of the Let's Get Real Estate podcast. Bye for now. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast and congratulations on improving your education real estate. Please leave a review only if you felt we provided value as it would really help us if you would leave a five-star review so that we can help reach a broader audience. And don't forget to comment what you enjoyed and tell us what you're looking to learn more about. As always, thanks for your support and we'll see you on the next episode.